the thing about art and Jean-Luc Marion is very good on this, but art is, does not lack meaning. It's saturated with meaning. It is overdetermined by meaning. So you can go back to your favorite art at different times and it will speak in different ways. Mm. And you can't reduce it to a singular meaning, not because it lacks meaning, but because yeah. it's got so much like a parable. That's why I love parables is they remain alive for thousands of years because mm. literally they're so infused with meanings that you can read them in in various productive and constructive ways and faith in many ways is about being invited into that conversation it's not about the answers but the conversation host and this is episode number 136 and uh let me tell you something right now it's good it is it is good that you drop by today because today we're sitting down with what i call the man the myth the legend the goat the greatest of all time uh peter rollins if you don't know who pete is you got to go to google uh go to the googles and type in his name, and uh, you will see that he is a very well-known philosopher, uh, theologian. He's written a bunch of books. Uh, some of my favorites are Insurrection. Now, there's a word we've seen thrown around lately uh, in the news, but this book was written well before uh, that event on January 6th. But Insurrection, uh, The Divine Magician is another one of my favorites. Really, really good stuff. Um, and I said this to him before we hit record. I first came across his stuff ooh, maybe three, four years ago. And I remember I was like just beginning to really deep dive into this deconstruction world. And I, I read some of his stuff and I was like, this sounds really good, but I don't know what to do with it. And so I highlighted like a bunch of stuff. I, I, I dog-eared all the pages. I watched some of his videos and I just put it all away for a while. And I picked it back up maybe six months ago. And I was like, oh, like reading some of my highlights. I'm like, ah, yeah, like this sounded interesting to me then. But now I have a category for it all these years later. And so just really good stuff. And today's coming on to talk to us about a virtual course that he's doing for Lent. Uh, the course is called Atheism for Lent. And I'm not going to give you... Any sneak peeks, no peeks behind the curtain here until we until we roll the tape. Uh, but it's really good. And, and something that's really wild is that Pete has allowed me to give away three free tickets to the course. So normally a ticket costs 45 bucks for an individual. 
Uh, so PETA's allowed me to give away three tickets. So you could win a ticket. Uh, how do you win? If you go to whatifproject.net, click on the Atheism for Lent tab, uh, it will pop up a little page there. It will show you how to enter, how to get your name entered multiple times, if that's your thing. Like if you want to really obsess over this, uh, you can do that. There is a way to get your name entered into the hat. I don't know, like an unlimited amount of times, five times, 10 times, 20 times, whatever floats your boat. Uh, but all the information is there at whatifproject.net. Uh, a few things before we jump in. Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject and uh, buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject are two places to go to support the show uh, financially. So Patreon is kind of like a tier-based program, uh, $3 a month, $7 a month, all the way up. Uh, every tier gets a reward. And buy me a coffee is a, is a new thing. I'll let you make a one-time contribution. So maybe uh, you listen to this episode and you're like, man, that was really good. Uh, you can give five bucks to it. You can give 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever it is that you want uh, instead of doing a monthly subscription. So Patreon is a subscription and buy me a coffee is a one-time contribution. Uh, both the links will be in the show notes. Uh, the Heretic Shop. If you don't want to buy, if you don't want to do any tier level giving, you don't want to do any kind of one-time contribution. Uh, you can wear the What If Project swag on your back if you want to. Uh, we have hoodies, we have uh, t-shirts, we have blankets, we have all sorts of different things there uh, at the Heretic Shop. And as the name of the shop uh, kind of tells you, uh, some of the stuff there is things that uh, some some tribes of Christians would deem to be heretical in nature. So head over there and check it out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes um, as well. And lastly, special music today uh, is from my friend Derek Webb. Uh, Derek Webb used to be a part of a very prominent Christian band. He has since left the band. Uh, he is making his own music, doing his own stuff, and really, really good. Um, I want to get Derek on the podcast sooner than later, but in the meantime, we do have his music. He has allowed me to share it with you. Uh, so that is the music that you will hear today. I head over to Spotify, Apple Music, listen to it, download it, share, share it with your friends, uh, blast it from your speakers, and uh, enjoy it. It is, it is good, good stuff. So all of that said, uh, I am going to silence myself now. And we are going to roll the tape uh, with the one and the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Peter Rollins. Enjoy.
everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we are in for a treat because we're sitting down with the one and the only, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Peter Rollins. So Pete, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. It's an honor. Oh, thank you. That was, a, that was a great intro. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So a lot of our listeners are super familiar with your work, but maybe for those who aren't, uh, could you kick it off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Some of the highlights of your, your journey. Yeah, so uh, you said my name is Pete Rollins. I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, originally. Mm. I would have never guessed that from your... Yes, I will. You know, depending if you don't know the accent, people sometimes (laughs) say Scotland. So Northern Ireland is very close to Scotland. So we have quite a a similar type of harshness to our accent. Um, So yeah, so from Belfast, lived there most of my life, but then actually moved to America uh, in my early 30s. And I've been working here uh, ever since. Mm. Um, I'm trained as a philosopher primarily, and I do theological work. I do work that's on the, the border between philosophy, continental philosophy, psychoanalysis, and what's called radical theology. But mm. my main passion, I'm not, I, don't, I didn't go into the academic world. My main passion is a project uh, called Parotheology, which is a theory and a practice of faith. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's what I do. So what exactly is pyrotheology, hmm. if you had to define that? I knew as soon as I said that, I was like, <laughs> here, because that, right. that could, that's, a, that's a biggie. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny how words form. Mm. You know, you've got a whole body of work. You're, you're just working through things. And then you think, oh, well, actually, the word pyrotheology was thought up by a friend of mine, Chris Fry, who's a psychoanalyst. And we used the term in a gathering we were doing in Belfast. And I liked the word. Mm. basically it meant nothing so I just took it you know and I took it and said everything I do is parotheology <laughs> so <laughs> um but then over time it's become something so that term which was just plucked out of the air uh connected to my community in Belfast so it had a history with that community it it, it started off really a, an exploration of how doubt ambiguity ambiguity and complexity are part of our nature is part of being human uh, whether we have a distinct religious belief or not doubt complexity and ambiguity is part of life and it's a productive part of life it's actually mm-hmm. something that we shouldn't be afraid of but enter into and also my work was largely about the dangers of seeking certainty and satisfaction the mm-hmm. tyranny of happiness that the more we try to have certainty and satisfaction the more dissatisfied anxious and uncertain we become and parotheology was a theory and practice designed to help people embrace freedom from the pursuit of certainty and satisfaction to enjoy the, the unknowing of life and to find that as a, as a form of expression of faith. Mm. Now, it's deepened and developed from there, but that's just to give people a little bit of an introduction. Yeah. And I think for a, a lot of people like myself, that almost feels counterintuitive, right? Because for me, growing mm. up in the church, we were taught that certainty equaled faith and that if you were uncertain or you had any kind of doubt that meant that you were lacking faith and that something was wrong with you and so i think just the very definition of that it feels like it brings me a lot of freedom to know that there is life within the doubt and the uncertainty absolutely and and here's the thing so if we if we want to just dive into a few things here is like yeah yeah um you know one of the journeys people have right there's a few a few different uh, types of journey we can go on. And sometimes it's, we start off, we think we're right, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, we, we start off in a world where we're young and we, we trust what's told to us. 
-hmm. And then when, if, and when that starts to break down, we can either repress the doubts and we get, you know, we double down and we hide our questioning Mm. or sometimes we find a a different set of beliefs and we think that that's the answer. Um, The other journey is where you open yourself up to the productive power of that doubts and that questioning. However, and this is a very Christian notion, this is called dialectics is what I'm about to kind of talk about here, is in dialectics, you don't, you might move from a place of certainty to a place of uncertainty, but that's not the end of the journey. The next stage, and it sounds really weird at first and counterintuitive, is that you find a type of certainty in the uncertainty. Mm. And this, this type of dialectic is fine in philosophy, but it very much can be seen as connected with Christianity. So basically, the way we think is when we're, we're given two positions, an affirmation and a negation, we often want the affirmation. For example, if someone says, do you want to be positive or negative? You kind of want to be positive. I want to be happy. And the happiness is a position, a thesis. And then the negation of that is unhappiness, which is an antithesis, right? You, you're wanting to get rid of unhappiness. Um, however, if you go to psychoanalysis, the analyst doesn't say, let's not talk about the darkness. Let's talk about just happy things and bunny rabbits, right? <laughs> the, the analyst throws you into the depth of the darkness, but it's not sadistic. It's because they know that actually you have to enter into the darkness in order to find the light, right? Yeah. So you, in the sense, between positivity and negativity, you actually choose negativity. And in choosing negativity, you discover positivity. Mm. It's like when you, you say that in order to uh, gain your life, you must lose it. That's a dialectic. That's the idea that if I try to keep my life, I, I lead a very hedonistic and shallow existence, but if I lose my life in a cause, I find myself weirdly receiving the very life that I thought I'd given up. Yeah. And the Christian definition of faith is the same thing. You know, the certainty of what you cannot see. Right? It brings together these two, two opposites. And in a lot of my work, I try to show that this dialectic approach to life is a central one. Mm-hmm. That, um, and just to give you one more example, yeah. if you believe that life is meaningful, that's an affirmation. And then if you come to a point and you believe that life is meaningless, that's a negation. Mm. Then you might find that actually in believing that life is meaningless, you're making a claim about what existence is. You're making a claim about life and reality. So there's a type of meaning that is in the meaninglessness. Mm. So again, dialectically, you come to a third position where you find meaning in embracing a radical experience of loss of meaning. And that's just to kind of give you a sense of this weird topsy-turvy notion of dialectics. Yeah. And I love that because I think, you know, my friend Alexander Shia talks about the, the importance of like redeeming the dark and how a lot of times, again, in the church, like I was taught growing up, you always want to cast out the darkness. You want to stay away from the darkness, like the dark equals bad. But to your point, like when you go into the darkness, it's oftentimes in the deepest part of the dark that you begin to find the light. Absolutely. The mystics call it the dark night of the soul. Or yes. the light of unknowing. Yep. Right. So good. So let's jump in. I brought you on the show today to talk a little bit about your online course coming up called Atheism for Lent, yep. uh, which for our listeners starts up on February 17th, which is uh, Ash Wednesday and the first day of Lent. And so I guess a, a really good first question would be, Like, what in the world is this about? Because on the surface, right, it would feel like atheism and Lent are two words that should never be in the same sentence. At least when I was growing up, that would have been true uh, in church. But, you know, atheism, the lack of belief in the existence of God. 
uh, Lent, which stems obviously from theism, the belief in the existence of God. So maybe help us understand, like, what on earth is this course about if you had to explain it to somebody? Absolutely. Um, so funnily enough, we've kind of set this up a little bit with the, with the talk of dialectics, um, where theism is an affirmation in terms of a, a supreme being or ground of being. Um, and the atheism is kind of a rejection of that. Now, mm-hmm. the truth is there's lots of theisms and there's lots of atheisms, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just one theism, one atheism, and different religions generate different atheisms. In one, in one sense, we think of atheism and theism as very separate things. Mm-hmm. But actually, in the history of thought, they have been lovers and they have danced together. They've enriched each other and they've enveloped each other. So, for example, the first theological atheists were the mystics, because uh, the mystics said that every time you say something of God, a theism, you have to uh, have an atheism. You have to also realize that your words don't capture the reality you're trying to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Anselm is the best at this. Anselm develops a very sophisticated notion in his proslogion that, that God is um, that which is greater than can be conceived, mm-hmm. which is, in other words, the, the, that name, that three-letter word, is, is a descriptor of something that is beyond the mind's capacity to grasp. Mm-hmm. So atheism is central for the mystics to theism. Now, that's just one aspect. There's actually a number of them. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer develops a different form of theological atheism. But the, 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 the whole point of atheism for Lent, um, or maybe I'll describe how it started. It started actually from a relatively orthodox Catholic philosopher called, called Merrill Westphal, who wrote a book called Suspicion and Faith, where he looked at some of the great critics of religion as, as Lenten readings, as spiritual readings, as readings of purification. He looked at Nietzsche and Freud and Marx, and he said that these critiques of God are very biblical. You know, this is the critique of ideology. And so these critiques can purify. They're like a purifying fire that actually gets us even deeper into the heart of what faith is. Mm. So atheism for Lent is, Lent is all about giving something up, chocolate or television or whatever and so by saying atheism for lent there's a sense in which we're saying we're going to give up something central we're going to allow atheistic readings to be purifying readings Mm -hmm. to kind of critique an idolatrous notion of god Mm -hmm. and so that's how it kind of began but atheism for lent isn't just for theists it's for theists and atheists and agnostics Mm -hmm. because really it's about showing us all that this conversation, uh, if you're an atheist and you don't engage with some of these interesting theologians, your atheism might become an adolescent cry. Like, you know, you know the 15-year-old who reads, reads Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche's fantastic, but there's that 15-year-old reading of Nietzsche that's, that, that's very, very shallow. Mm. And theism that is not engaged with the atheism becomes like astrology. It becomes like this superstitious discipline. But when they come together they enrich and enhance each other and actually can be a very, very productive experience. So Mm. just one final thing then about that is over atheism for Lent, every day of Lent, you get a critique uh, or you get a, you know, one week it's atheistic critiques of theism. The next week it's theological kind of critiques of theism. And every day you get a different reflection. And then once a week, I give a talk about those reflections and it leads up to the cry of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Because here's the real key is that the apostle Paul 
was the first person, basically is the inventor of this idea um, that, that the death of God is a central event that we all have to experience, right? The loss of all meaning is not is something that's central to the life of faith. And since the apostle Paul was the first one to kind of say that, and then Luther said it, and then Hegel, the philosopher, he brought it to the level of pure philosophy, mm. and then Nietzsche said it. So there's this weird connection between Nietzsche and St. Paul, because Nietzsche also felt that the death of God was a fundamental experience that all of us need to feel in order to move to something better. So if atheism for Lent, like we said, that Lent, you said, is traditionally about giving up chocolate or TV or social media, whatever, or God forbid, coffee. I could never, ever, <laughs> ever do that. But you talk about atheism for Lent is about giving up something central. Could you maybe dig into that a little bit more, like maybe give us like a practical example of what that would look like? Are we talking about like giving up maybe the certainty of my beliefs or is maybe a particular belief that I white knuckle? Like, is there um, something particular or is it more of like a vague experience? And once you get into it, uh, you kind of figure out what it means for you. Yeah, well, what will happen and the way it's curated is it's very gradual. So, you know, you start off in the first week and you're looking at just some of the standard kind of critiques of the existence of God, very simple stuff. Okay. Um, and then the next week you go into the mystics and it becomes a bit more interesting. And, you know, the, the, athe- the, the mystics who say that we have to denominate to denium God every time mm-hmm. we name God, we look at that. And then the next week we go into the critique of that, which is the, the materialist critique that says that, um, you know, what's really important is not the God who is, you know, impossible to speak of, but what we have to do is we have to look at religion as it actually works in the world. Mm. And the critiques of that are from people like Feuerbach and Marx and others who say that religion stands or falls by how it transforms the world. And then we look at, after that, the existential theologians who try to build a theology precisely from that idea. Mm. Um, people like Paul Tillich. Um, and then into the contemporary debates of people like uh, Slavio Shizek and, and others and, and where I would locate my own work. Hmm. So the idea is that when you do atheism for Lent, you will start to feel very gradually um, a decentering. It's actually, it's called a decentering practice. I have a number of decentering practices hmm. and they're designed to destabilize us, challenge us um, in a very productive and hopefully fun and enjoyable way. But the idea is that you will start to really feel um, the ground shift and shake beneath your feet. Hope is that you feel a sense of that death of God that's so central to Christianity. When Paul says, I preach Christ crucified, you know, you experience that death of God at the very core of your being Mm. with the idea that as you go into that dark night of the soul, you will find something more wonderful on the other side. But Mm. I can't what that is you know that's not because then if you try to lose your life because you want to find it you're not really losing your life so right. for when you do atheism for Lent, you just have to kind of say i'm going to go into the heart of darkness and by the way my critique of atheism has always been that atheism is not atheistic enough right that's what nietzsche said when nietzsche talked about the death of god he wasn't talking to people who believed in god he was mm-hmm. talking to people who didn't believe humanists and the reason why he was talking to them is he was saying that deep down, you still have this superstitious notion of a ground, of something that holds everything together. Like, Mm -hmm. so today you find people who don't believe anything, but they hear a tap on the window and suddenly think there's a ghost. 
or they go to get their palm read, even though they don't believe in that kind of stuff. Like there's a lot of, you know, these weird superstitious beliefs or they think money will make them happy or something, you know, these weird religious beliefs that, that permeate society mm. that we haven't freed ourselves from. So atheism for Lent is a, is a journey into the dark night of the soul. Mm. And it sounds like this is a kind of just the beginning of the journey, right? Like it's not necessarily the whole journey in and of itself, because as you're talking, like my inner evangelical child, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's screaming because it seems like this isn't something that's going to have a nice, neat bow tied up on it once we hit Easter, because we, we like that. We like to go through these Lenten practices where maybe it's hard at some point, but once Easter comes, like everything is good. We tie the bow on and we move on with the rest of our, of our year. But this sounds like it's really like you said, like a disorienting process where there is no promise of what the end of these 40 days is going to look like, but it's going to be exactly. the beginning of whatever the next leg of the journey is for you. A hundred percent. And, yeah. and to, to hint at, to hint at what happens when you go into this and, and, you know, Paul Tillich was probably, you know, one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century who, who did a version of this approach because for him, um, and for many, like Simone Weil as well, they would talk about how atheism is closer to Christianity than theism, mm. because atheism is a denial is a, of, of these names we give to God. Mm. And that, that, that pulling apart of those names is actually part of the, the tradition of I, idolatry critique, right, in the Bible. Mm. So um, the whole point for someone like Paul Tillich or Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the very end of his life, when he talked about religionless Christianity, Bonhoeffer said to live as though God is not given is to live fully before God and with God. Mm. And now what he means by that is he said that God is given. That means God is an object that answers qu questions, right? Mm. Um, if I can very briefly give you a summary of an idea uh, that you know, probably um, Thomas Altizer says best, but there is an objective death of God happened um, in the modern world. And the objective death of God was the moment when science no longer needed God as a postulate in order to make progress in unconcealing the world, mm. right? So Immanuel Kant's very important in this, is that science got to a point and scientists got to a point where God was no longer needed as a scientific hypothesis. Now, a lot of these scientists were deeply religious still, right? They didn't give up their religion. They just were like, oh, we can study the natural world without having a, a, a certain metaphysical presupposition. So that can be called the objective death of God. And it was deeply productive of the sciences. Then in the 19th and 20th century, we have the growth of what can be called the subjective death of God. And the subjective death of God, which is what Bonhoeffer's talking about, is where people no longer needed God as a postulate to make sense of morality or to be able to cope with guilt or to be able to cope with death. Now, again, what they're not saying is people stop believing in God, not at all. But they were just saying that within the cultural milieu, it became possible. In fact, it was the dominant thing that people didn't need God in order to um, confront their guilt, which is simply a word for I am not the type of person I want to be, right? I'm not living up to something. Mm. Death, which is the ultimate nothingness that I will become nothing. And funnily enough, a Bonhoeffer at that point said, he said, you know, the issue is a Christianity that tries to make God into a postulate 
tries to put humanity back into childhood. If someone is able to face death and guilt and suffering without the need of a God, then saying that they do need that won't work. What, what Bonhoeffer said is, can there be a faith where God can speak into the strength of a person and can make us stronger, not make us needier, but bring us into full adulthood? But then the third move, and this is, this is what I've been working with, is the unconscious death of God. And I, I, I'm influenced by Nietzsche here and Lacan and others, is the notion that and even though the, the objective death of God has happened and the subjective death of God has happened, there is in our society an unconscious God, which means that deep down, people have all sorts of superstitious beliefs that are guiding them. Um, very quickly, one example of this is in a room full of people who had no religious beliefs at all. I asked them if they would say a satanic prayer over somebody they loved. And I brought the satanic prayer with me and I asked somebody to come up to the front and do it. This curse, <laughs> and nobody would do it. And I, I used this point to say, you know, the, you, you don't think that the, there's a devil who's going to curse somebody because you say this stupid thing that actually I made up. Um, <laughs> but you do, unconsciously you do. And there's lots of tests that show this. Atheism, my work, parotheology, is designed to undergo this, the unconscious death of God. And once that happens, I believe that um, a, new, an, a notion of God and faith will arise that is in continuity with the, the ancient Christian tradition, but mm -hmm. that is very different. And that's what I want people to enter into, that mm -hmm. experience. Reminds me, like, growing up, once I, once I hit the deconstruction world, like I started this process, I began to realize that growing up, like my view of God, like you said earlier, became almost like an idol. And I guess, mm -hmm. I guess the call for me in these recent years, and maybe this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this is what atheism for Lent is calling us to, is almost to become an atheist, not to God, but to that idol or to that understanding of God that we sometimes so white knuckle grip that we don't want to let go of. Is that, am I correct in that? Yes. Now, this is this gets us into some really interesting territory because you're mm. right, and you're actually that you're right, especially in the sense of that's the first step mm. um, in the journey and a really important step in the journey. the The real trick, and and by the way, you know, you don't have to go with me on this. I'm just going to kind of outline where I think sure, sure. next is, is that that the, often the first step, and I, I call this alienation. Mm. Um, if I can actually, if I use psychoanalysis for a second, and um, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's, there's this um, uh, separation that happens between the child and the, the primary caregiver. Right? Mm. And uh, this is where the infant, there's kind of like two births, the, the physical birth and then the birth of subjectivity. Mm. And subjectivity arises as you start feeling separate from the world around you mm. um, and also separate from yourself. But that's a different story, right? So you begin to become a subject when you're able to say there is me and there is not me. There is me and there's my mother, right? Now, if that doesn't happen, psychosis kind of erupts. So when this happens, this happens in two stages. There is alienation and separation. Alienation is where you start to feel apart from, say, your, your mother. But you want to go back to fullness and oneness. So you're always trying to figure out a way to get your mother's desire. But your mother desires other people and other things. Mm -hmm. And so you can never quite do it. Um, but then at a certain stage called separation, you realize that you cannot fulfill your mother because your mother is also a divided subject with lots of 
desires and interests and cannot be fulfilled, right? They are a divided subject just like you. Mm. Now, within Christianity, I would argue that this is the second stage. The first stage is where you feel yourself separated from God, which is you find in all religions, really, this idea of alienation. What's interesting about the crucifixion is you find that God is alienated from God, right? So whenever Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can call this a double kenosis. It's not just that God has emptied God's self into the finite, into the nothingness, but also now experiences a division within God's self. This for me is, is, is the radical heart of, of paratheology is the idea that you first of all feel that I don't have the answers, that there's contingency and, and contradiction and chaos built into me. And then you realize, no, it's built into the heart of reality itself, that God experiences that very same experience. And so therefore it's no longer alien. It's no longer something to get rid of. It is something that is part of reality itself. Although I think this is a Christian insight, I think that you can see it mimicked in various disciplines, right? So in, in politics, it's called democracy. Democracy is the non-at-oneness of the social body that, that creates progress or hopefully complexity in the social organism. In biology, it's called evolution. Evolution is the non-at-oneness of biological systems that, pr- that produce complexity and, and, and uh, adaption to in the environment. Mm. In mathematics, it's called incompleteness, where mathematics falls into its own contradiction at its most deep level, um, so that mathematics is generated by contradiction. Mm. And in physics, it's called wave-particle duality. And in psychoanalysis, it's called the unconscious, right? These are all elements where science realizes that that, that contradiction and, and kind of like a lack is not simply in us, but it's part of the nature of reality itself. And when we come to terms with that, we enter into a much richer form of life. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. Mm. (laughs) It just totally blew my mind. (laughs) It's so cool though, that when there's something that you think is a theological idea, when you see it bred into other areas of life, I think that's, that's the, the alarm should go off that this is an actual, this is an actual truth. Exactly. Like, yeah, and this is why I'm really interested in the philosopher Hegel. Now, he is one of the most difficult philosophers in the world. He's mm. probably the most difficult. But he, um, he uh, and he was writing, I'm terrible with years, I think 1700s, yeah, 1700s. Um, he was the one to kind of see this and to, to kind of put it into words. And he was struggling to put it into words, but he kind of saw this death of God, not just as a contingent thing, not some, you know, not something we have to overcome, but as central to the very heart of reality itself. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is what the next Reformation is going to kind of is going to be. Is this idea? It's not that because it's not that I simply experience loss and difficulties and chaos of some sorts. But in the words of Soren Kierkegaard, um, that chaos and anxiety that you feel is evidence of your freedom. That anxiety is the very feeling of your spirit. It's not something to get rid of. It is your, it's basically, Soren Kierkegaard, he's brilliant. He says that that's basically your um, evidence of, of emancipation. And so whenever we live in a society where we try to avoid anxiety at all costs, we actually just increase it, or we increase a sense of melancholy. 
uh, Kierkegaard's policy is there's something about anxiety and unknowing that is at the heart of faith that we have to find a way to embrace. That's so good. I've been doing a lot of um, mindfulness practice lately and kind of one of the the keys of mindfulness is to not try to push away the feelings of whatever it is, anxiety, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whatever, but just to allow, allow it to be and to be with it. And when, because when you try to push it away, to your point, you try to push it away, it becomes stronger. It's like you're yes. fueling the beast. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Now, can I give you a, a very quick um, uh, parable about this? Because Pete, you a, can say whatever you want on my podcast. <laughs> you are Pete Rollins. <laughs> Go for brilliant. it. Very good. I think, by the way, you've got a great, I've got, a, you've got a great voice for podcasting. That doesn't mean you don't have a good face for TV. You might be a very handsome man, but you've got a very, you've got a very warm voice. So well, thank you. We'll flip on the camera when we're done, and we'll see what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so th- this is a parable, ancient Jewish parable, um, mm. and there's lots of ones that have the same structure. But basically, two rabbis arguing over a passage in the Torah. They can never find agreement. They've been arguing for 20 years. Mm. And God finally gets so annoyed by this that God says, I'm going to go down and tell these two rabbis what this passage means. <laughs> so God parts the clouds, goes down to the two rabbis and says, I've listened to you argue. I'm getting sick of it. I'm going to tell you what it means. And in a rare moment of unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, what right have you to come down here and tell us what it means? You clear off back to heaven and let <laughs> us argue, right? <laughs> I love this because it's the opposite of what we think religion is. Yeah. We think religion is there to, and God kind of like will get rid of the chaos of the arguments and the disagreements, that mm. there is a singular meaning to the text that, and that God knows it. And that if we only knew it, that would calm everything down. Mm. So in this, in this parable, you can see God is the symbol of happiness. Happiness is homeostasis, as, as lack of conflict. So God is the symbol of happiness. You could say the Torah is the symbol of the language we're embedded within, whatever language that is. For these two rabbis, they're embedded in this Jewish tradition, mm. uh, which creates contradictions. And the two rabbis are a symbol of our subjectivity. We are two people. We're, we're a fight. We're a conflict, right? There's more than one thing going on within us. That's what a symptom is, by the way. A symptom is the coagulation of a contradiction within our being. Mm. So that if, you want, if you're grinding your teeth, it might be because you want to shout at somebody, but also you do want to shout at them because you do want to lose them. Mm. So that's a contradiction of your desire. And the coagulation of that contradiction is the symptom, which speaks the truth that you cannot speak. Mm. So the point of this parable is to show what I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer called religionless Christianity, which is that all of the productivity is in the argument. We do, don't give up the argument. It is pr- productive of friendship. The two rabbis get on well. It's productive of knowledge. It's productive of being better rabbis. And the last thing we want is to get rid of the contradictions in life. Rather, what we want to do is make them productive. And the idea in this parable, of course, is, and that is a religious thing. <laughs> so this isn't a critique of religion. It's a religious parable, but yeah. it's a parable. It's a critique of a certain notion of God. So it's an atheistic theological parable. I've told this story in the podcast a bunch of times now, but I'm just going to tell it again anyway. But when I'm, t- when you listen, when I'm listening to that parable, it reminds me my, when I got to seminary, I came out of a, uh, I went to private Christian school from the fourth through 12th grade. I went to Bible college when I got in the seminary, I had this idea that there's a right way to understand the Bible and there's a wrong way. And there's one way to understand it. And typically I was going to go to seminary. They're going to teach me the right way to understand it. And I got into my hermeneutics class and my professor, I'll never forget. 
he divided us into, let's say 10 groups. Each group had two people and he gave us each like a, a background. Like you, this group is a Presbyterian group. This is a reform group. This group is two women who have been abused by their husbands. This group is two, you know, kids who grew up in an at-risk world, whatever. And he gave us all the same passage and said, now read this passage through the lens of that group and write me a sermon about it. And wow. every, everybody in the room had a different sermon, but it, like a light bulb went off for me that my goodness, like I don't have to, there's not one certain way to understand any particular text, but there really is a multiplicity of meaning. And that was such a freeing idea for me. And I didn't realize it because I thought to myself, this is going to be horrifying, you know, <laughs> realizing mm -hmm. that there's not one single way to understand a certain text or to understand God or whatever, but there's many different ways. And that was so freeing for me. So as you're telling that story, that's ringing in my head and it's just absolutely the freedom. is just immense. I mean, it's crazy. Like it's like, um, it's like looking at a great piece of art and thinking that the, the getting the right interpretation is what shows. Yeah. You love right. The thing about art and Jean-Luc Marion is very good on this, but art is, does not lack meaning. It's saturated with meaning. It is over-determined by meaning. So you can go back to your favorite art at different times and it will speak in different ways. Mm. And you can't reduce it to a singular meaning, not because it lacks meaning, but because yeah. it's got so much like a parable. That's why I love parables is they remain alive for thousands of years because mm. literally they're so infused with meanings that you can read them in, in various productive and constructive ways. And mm. faith in many ways is about being invited into that conversation. It's not about the answers, but the conversation. I mean, very quickly, another parable of just a, a guy who goes to this old rabbi, this old rabbi in his 80s, and says to the rabbi, teach me the logic of God. The mm. rabbi laughs. He was like, you're in your 20s. Like, come on, come <laughs> right. back to me in 10 years, you know. But the guy, you know, he's very persistent. And he says, just test me to see if I'm ready. And so the rabbi says, well, two guys come down a chimney. At the bottom, one has soot in their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? Mm. And the guy says, oh, the guy with the soot in his face. And the rabbi says, go away. He says, no, the guy without the soot on his face, because he looks at the guy with the soot on his face. Therefore, he assumes he must have soot in his face. Therefore, he washes. The guy goes, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's very good. And he says, test me again. And he says, okay, I'll ask you another question. And he says, two guys come down a chimney. The bottom one has soot in their face. One doesn't. Who washes their face? And he says, oh, the guy, the guy without the soot on his face. And the rabbi says, go away. He says, of course not. Don't be smart. The guy with the soot in his face, he, you don't think he's going to taste it in his mouth and feel it in his eyes and touch his face and see it on his hands. And the guy's confused at this stage. And he says, one more time. And the rabbi says, okay, a different question. Two guys come down a chimney, one has soot in their face, one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the guy's confused. And the rabbi says, they both do. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot in your face? You're an idiot, right? <laughs> like, the, point, the point of the story, I think, is to say that this kid thinks that faith is about having the answer. Yeah. And what this rabbi is trying to tell him is it's not. It's about having an argument. You're, you're, being, you're part of a discussion that's gone on for thousands of years before you've come on the scene and will go on for thousands of years after you leave. Mm. And when you're looking for the singular answer, that's the, that's the point when you're not ready. But yeah. when you're ready to have this discussion, and I think that's true of any tradition, whatever, whatever language game we are born into, our challenge is to engage deeply and critically with it.
So we might go a little bit past our time. Is that good with you? I can make it oh, work yeah, on my end. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. One of the things I, I really like about this course, you mentioned it earlier, is that you say it's not about uh, us judging atheism's critiques of Christianity, but it's about letting the critiques kind of judge us. Yes. And so it's really about listening to the, the questions or critiques of somebody else. And I like that because again, looking back on my life, like one of the things I found is that as I've embraced the questions of other people, or maybe the, the critiques that they've had regarding maybe a particular belief that I held within Christianity, kind of the more my own questions and my own critiques of Christianity that I didn't even know I had began to be unearthed. Because like, for instance, one of the things that really jump-started my uh, deconstruction journey was Rob Bell's Love Wins, where he kind of voiced all sorts of questions regarding the church's traditional understanding of the doctrine of hell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, in classic Bell fashion, he, you know, the book is essentially a whole bunch of questions. Like if hell is a real place, well, then what about this? What about that? Like all these different questions. But what I didn't realize happened until like a few years later uh, after reading that book is that that book really unearthed and brought to the surface all sorts of questions that I had, like not just about hell, but about the Bible LGBTQ exclusion, original sin, the cross, and reading his critiques of hell, I guess kind of helped me come to a place where I was more comfortable to voice my own critiques that were buried deep beneath years and years of doctrine and theology that I thought I had to kind of white knuckle and wasn't free to ask questions. So I think I think the point, like the point I'm trying to say is that I think that exploring all of these critiques is going to help people voice their own questions and their own doubts. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The funny thing is, the thing, like if, if, the, if those questions weren't in you, you probably would have had no interest in that book. Like, it would, like what did the Amish think about Rob Bell's Love Wins? I mean, they don't, they don't care. They're just building barns. Right? They don't whatever. Right? whatever, right? So, but, but the people, some people really didn't like the book, right? There's some circles and they really hated it. Really? People didn't like it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here's the trick. This is the funny trick is that technically, why did, they, why did they hate it? Well, they disagreed with it. But actually, the disagreement looks a lot like a reaction formation. So a reaction formation is when you go to the opposite um, of what you really think. And Mm. the question for me is, is that, and I've seen this with my own work, there's people who disagree with me, but they just disagree with me and we have a good conversation. It's mutually enriching or it isn't. But the people who really disagree, honestly, you always find that if if I chat enough with those people, you find that the reason why they've got such a visceral disagreement is actually because it's touching on, on repressed questions within themselves, hence their, their anger. So when you meet someone who's obsessed with apologetics, you go like, oh, right, they're probably riven with doubt because otherwise why would they be, you know, reading Josh McDowell every night, you know? Right. Um, so um, in, in many ways, what you're touching on is, yes, that that, that book was an, if effective to you because it put voice, it put into symbols, it put into words, something that was going on within you. But you were ready to, and, and courageous enough to allow those questions to come to the surface. Because mm. sometimes we're not, and by the way, it's just it's times in our lives, sometimes we're not ready for that and we push it down and we get angry. But mm. you were able to bring that to the surface. So in my own work, I never, someone said to me, said, oh, so you want, people to doubt i was actually on this radio show and he was a big apologetics guy and i didn't know this He'd written like, <laughs> but we were having a great old chat it was really fun and he was a really nice guy but he says to me oh, so you're are you saying that we should doubt 
And I was like, well, no, I'm not saying that we should doubt. I'm saying that we're already full of doubts. We often just can't express it. And I said to him, like, for example, you know, you've written 10 books in apologetics. I mean, you must be riven by doubt. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> why would you have a whole radio show dedicated to this? Let me ask you a few questions now. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it seems like reaction formation. So the, um, uh, this is the funny thing is that there's parts of ourselves that we don't even know about. That's why I find it always weird when people talk about what they believe. Because I'm going like, we don't know what we believe. Our consciousness mm -hmm. is often designed to protect us from knowing what we believe. Like we, we think we love somebody when we really hate them or we, um, we think we're happy when we're really in despair. Mm -hmm. um, we don't realize and we actually need some people that often help us dig out our beliefs and, and what we really are because it's all hidden. Um, there's a beautiful verse in the Bible that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Right. Now, that's obviously not the truth of like mathematics. It's the, it's the idea that the truth of who you are and the truth of your beliefs, if you're able to put them into language, if you're able to know the truth, bring it to the surface, that very act of symbolizing the truth in psychoanalysis, it's called basically, it's called uh, beyond calls it alphabetizing the trauma, but basically you, you put the trauma, you put your unspeakable truth into language that act is itself healing and transformative. Mm -hmm. And so that's why probably it was healing and transformative to read that book and to be able to put into words what was already within you. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly it. I think, you know, just as I, I read that book, it just became so, it just helped put words, I guess, on so many things that I felt deep down inside, but had no words for. And I think, yeah. I think for me, like, the deconstruction process, a lot of it has been engaged around that topic of hell, just because that was so ingrained into my mind when I was a kid. And I think like looking back on it now, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, but I always had so many questions about it. Like there's so many things that did not make sense to me that I just forbade myself to ask because I didn't think I was allowed to. And yeah. once I saw that, like, here's a guy who, cause I had read Rob's stuff. Like I had you know, gone to Bible college, we used all his NUMA videos and youth group and stuff. So I was like really fairly well-versed in a lot of his stuff. And when I saw somebody like him, who I had a tremendous amount of respect for, ask those questions, I was like, my goodness, like it, it these questions I've had, I've been stuffing away for so long. It was like a valve released <laughs> and it just like this steam just blew and all these questions came out. So yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So speak to it for a moment, um, maybe to the people who are listening who are raised evangelical. They're kind of on the fence with this atheism for Lent thing. They kind of want to jump in. They kind of aren't too sure, but maybe that, you know, they were taught to buckle down on their, their beliefs, uh, you know, no doubts, no questions. Um, you know, the, the idea that doubts could be freeing is far an idea to them. Like, what would you say to them if they're on the fence of jumping into this? Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, the people who follow my work and often, jump into some of the stuff that I do or mm -hmm. are, are within the evangelical tradition mm -hmm. and the conservative tradition. And it's a tradition that I deeply respect because mm -hmm. there is a militancy and a commitment there that is palpable. Mm -hmm. So within evangelicalism and my, my original work, uh, a lot of people here from the evangelical community kind of got into it because they were the ones who were going like, I am ready and courageous enough to push this as far as it goes. Mm. I always find it much more difficult to work with people who sat at the back of the bar and were like, Oh yeah, try to impress me or whatever. <laughs> right. What I find is that, that a lot of this, so a lot of the people who 
engage in paratheology, for example, are the ones who took their faith so seriously. Because here's the thing, right? If you're in a church, for example, and you believe that this is the answer and this is going to make you whole and complete, but you don't ever fully do everything you're supposed to, right? You don't go on mission. You don't give your money away. You don't destroy your record collection. You don't, you know, read the Bible from start to finish, standing on your head, right? You don't do all the things. You don't fast for ages. Then you can always maintain the fantasy that if you did do that, it would work. But the people who do do that, I get all the crazy people. I get all the most mental people you'd imagine because I get the people who went, I did it all. I went on mission. I did. I, I learned everything. I destroyed my music collection. I did this. I did mm. that. In other words, they get to the center and they realize that the center didn't hold. Yeah. And so they went into then the heart of the darkness. But then out of that, they came to a more mature faith. So uh, my challenge is, you know, uh, to the evangelical community that, well, you guys are the ones who are more ready for this and progressives, um, who I always find difficult to work with. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, and it's because of that, that sheer will to go to the center and to go through it and to see what happens. So I just want to go, yeah, you, you know, you should not even jump on board with the atheism for Lent, but definitely go just like, my whole thing is fulfill your dreams so that you realize how ridiculous your dreams are, right? One of the things is <laughs> that, that people want to fulfill their dreams, but only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize your dreams do not fulfill you. That's that there's right. something about the failure to get what you want that keeps you imprisoned to the idea that that thing would be amazing if you got it, right? Yeah. Now, once you kind of break through, you realize that, oh, that, there's a failure in success, but then there's a success in that failure. There is a way of then embracing doubt, complexity, ambiguity, sacrifice, struggle, chaos, disorder. There's a way of embracing those that become peace and order. And there's a form of dissatisfaction that becomes satisfying. Mm. But all of that is when you push to the end. So atheism for Lent is not for the faint of heart. It really isn't. And it's difficult. It's 40 days with a reflection every day. And these are difficult reflections sometimes. And they're, they're emotionally difficult. They're intellectually difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not for the faint of heart. But if you're willing to, to experience the dark night of the soul, you may not even experience that with atheism for Lent, but it is designed to hopefully help you experience that. Yeah. If you don't experience it within those 40 days, it almost certainly woo you towards that dark night. <laughs> exactly. And it'll yeah. show you that you don't have to be afraid of the darkness because yeah. we're all like yeah. this, right? We, all of us hate dialectics. And by the way, Plato thought you shouldn't even learn dialectics till you're at least 30 because it's just too complicated to, to learn. Um, but dialectics does, although we actually understand that, I think initially we always avoid it. So for example, I see all the time people saying, well, I, I want to avoid negativity. I want to be positive. And I understand why people say that. However, there's this sad thing that oh, someday you're going to have to tarry with the traumas of your lives. Like I know lots of people, for example, I have a friend who throws up a lot and has digestive issues. Mm. And it was only through analysis that she, that she worked out that there was something from her past, a trauma that she was not able to digest, not able to put into language. And that manifested itself in throwing up and bad digestion. And she was always trying to find doctors who could help, but it was only when she was able to bring that truth into symbolic light of day that things changed. 
I've seen this with a lot of people I know who are convinced that there's a stranger in the house when they're alone, like convinced that there's somebody under the bed or in the cupboard or outside the window, not realizing that that enemy is not outside the window, it's within them. It's an externalization of an inner trauma that hasn't been symbolized, hasn't been spoken. Mm. Again, through the act of bringing that to the surface, which is painful. It means working with someone, it means a lot of tears, it means a lot of sadness, but then you get to a point where the stranger is no longer outside the window because the stranger is no longer inside you. So there is a courage that's required to go into this dialectic darkness, but I want to encourage people that it's when you go into the dark in the right way with help, with people, with art, then you will find actually that the darkness leads to the light or the darkness has light in it. Yeah. Wow. That is so good. Pete, we are just about out of time, but this has been incredible. Uh, We have to do this again sometime. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I've really enjoyed this. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to another conversation soon. Thank you. And real quick, where can people go to find you online? Oh, great. So um, PeterRollins.com has everything there about atheism for Lent. But if you don't want to sign up to anything, there's loads of free stuff. Like there's hundreds of hours of free material on YouTube mm-hmm. and whatever. And But then there's also courses and stuff like that that you can also get access to. So PeterRollins.com for anybody who wants to know about atheism for Lent. And there is a lot, there is to your point, a lot of free stuff out there because I went down the rabbit hole of uh, Peter uh-huh. Rollins' YouTube videos. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> out there. It's so good. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much and I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Just for goodness.